okay, so the first chapter is kind of a primer on how to learn from symbols. Uh, we don't have time to do that one, but the idea is this is a symbolic version and we need to learn to see and recognize symbols. Chapter one, we just kind of get to look at a few symbols. Jesus is like, or the candlesticks, the church is like a candlestick and Jesus is in the midst of the candlesticks. Um, how is Jesus like light? But we won't do that. Chapters two and three are letters to the seven churches. And every one of them is, here's what you're doing well, here's what you're doing poorly, and if you overcome, here's a blessing. But all of the blessings are little keys to understand what's coming in the rest of the book. So he kind of starts to give us little keys in the first couple of chapters, like the white stone or robes or something like that. So then we start in chapter four. Revelation chapter four is where John is called up into heaven. And he says, let me show you, let me take you into heavenly father's house. Now, what do you suppose you would learn about my family if you came into my house? Don't you assume, wouldn't you guess that you would learn a great deal about me and my priorities by simply walking into my home? What's on the wall, how I care for my home. So the first chapter is this beautiful little, let's walk into Heavenly Father's house. And what does John see? Let me just give you an example. What's the first thing that caught his attention? The very first thing that caught John's attention was the chairs were in what shape? Yes, but allow me to just, I mean, there's 24 seats. I'm going to call them chairs. What shape are they in? They're in a circle. Allow, I don't mean to, <sighs> Heavenly Father's kitchen table is round. Now tell me what, tell, what, tell me what that tells you. Sermons, sermons. Heavenly Father's kitchen table is round, which means there isn't what? A head. Everyone at that table is equal. Oh my goodness, I learned so much about heaven by a simple concept that Heavenly Father puts these 24 seats in a circle. We could spend hours just in chapter four and what do you learn about Heavenly Father from what you see in his house? But I wanna focus on, tell me what John saw. Tell me what John saw. Verse four, he saw exalted people, exalted people, 24 elders that symbolize all of us. So we exalted people in heavenly father's house, right? Number two, verse six, the sea of glass. Now, luckily we have been given keys to understand what is the sea of glass. Long story short, what's the sea of glass? It's the earth in its celestial form. So what's, what else is in Heavenly Father's house? Exalted planets. That Heavenly Father has saved his children. He saves his planets and one more. End of verse six. This is the greatest news. I love this. What fills Heavenly Father's house? Animals, pets, heavenly father saves animals, exalted animals fill his house. Joseph Smith said, and we won't, you can find the commentary later. I can send it to you if you, if you can't find it. John saw animals saved from all sorts of heavenly father's world, some of which don't appear. I guarantee there's a unicorn somewhere on some world. Maybe not on ours. But I guarantee some world has a unicorn. And so John saw the animals 
in the celestial kingdom. And not only that, but they're talking. The animals in Heavenly Father's kingdom speak. They don't need them. Now, why is it that they have wings and they're full of eyes? Turn to section 77. Tell me what the wings and the eyes represent. Now, that's symbolical. They weren't literally covered with wings and eyes. That's symbolic. Why did they have wings and eyes in the vision? Verse 4. Full of knowledge and so the the eyes represent full of light and truth and the wings represent power to move so can fish come out of water yeah so imagine can you imagine going on a stroll in the celestial kingdom i'm just going to go on a walk on the celestial kingdom and i find a bench and i sit down and a butterfly lands on my shoulders and we have this amazing conversation about oxidative phosphorylation Or the difference between salvation and justice, sanctification and justification. And the butterfly flies away. And it doesn't need lips. Doesn't need any lips. They communicate. So they're talking through your brain then. Or you're thinking of mortal animals and assuming mortal animals are the same as resurrected animals. All I know is the animals in, in John's vision do what? Speak to him. And the animals in the celestial kingdom do what? Speak. Now, let's pick one of those three and talk about how it got, how it gets there. We're going to tell a story. Now, we could tell the story about the, the people. How do people get into Heavenly Father's presence? Now, that's the story we want to hear, right? Because I'm a person and I want to get into Heavenly Father's presence. But the story he's going to tell is the story of the earth. Having seen exalted planets, exalted animals, exalted people, we're now going to be told how this earth will get into the, his presence. Now, that's a subtle way to do it. I understand. I, I, I like the logic. Let's talk about the salvation of the earth. And part of that is my story. But you need to understand, the story he's about to tell is how this planet is going to be exalted. So, chapter 5, verse 1. In the Father's right hand is... What? A book. Now, what's in the book? Now, we talked about this, right? Remember the class where we talked about why did James get the sword and Peter got the angel? What's in that book? Do you remember the reference? DNC 77, verse 6. What's in that book? Should we read it? Who's in 77? I'll read it. Verse 6. What are we to understand by the book which John saw, which was sealed on the back with seven seals? We are to understand that it contains the revealed will, the mysteries, the works of God, the hidden things of his economy concerning this earth during the 7,000 years of its continuance or its temporal existence. How big is that book? Now, I don't know the detail. I don't, could, could the book go to the minutest detail and tell my story in great detail. I'm sure somewhere in God's library is my book. But what story does this book tell? Or at least the portion of the book we're going to read. What story are we going to tell? The earth story. How many chapters are in the earth story? Seven chapters. Seven chapters. Now, that's, that number is significant, right? Because God created the earth in seven days. And so we're going to, how many of the, how many, how many of the thousands are going to be this work, rough, telestial place? Six. And then we will do what? Rest on the seventh. So we've got a millennial state. Did I do one, two, three, four, five, six? Okay, you blew it. So just like the creation, 
We've got six <clears throat> followed by, oh. and let's talk about the six. Can we talk about the story of the earth during the six? Now, he's, so we are, we're here, right? We're just like minutes before this one. Who's he speaking to? Is he speaking to these saints? No. So how quickly is he going to tell that story? Very quickly. So we're going to start opening up the seals, one seal per thousand years, and he's going to tell that story. So the first seal is the first thousand years. We get two verses, and we really get a picture. So here's the picture. Adam lived almost the whole thousand years. So the first horse, that, the, the, the first thousand years is symbolized by a horse and a rider. Now, you know, you've probably heard the, the four horsemen. This is kind of where it comes from. The first four thousand years is symbolized by horses. Now, the, the reality is how bad has it been? On earth. Well, not very bad. There's only Adam and Eve and a couple of kids. No. It's throughout the whole history of the earth. How bad has it been? Throughout the earth. And so what are we going to focus on? We're going to, as soon as we start opening these up, so let's go to chapter 6 when we start opening them up. Verse 1 and 2, white horse, conquer, Verse 3, the second seal. There went out a horse that was red. What would the symbol of red be? Blood. Death. Peace is taken from the earth. They have power to kill one another. What has been the story of earth from the very beginning? Death. Pain. Conquest. What's the color of the horse in verse 5, the third horse? And the black horse has a pair of balances on him, and they're selling wheat for pennies. So tell me what the story of earth tells. If earth told what she's seen, what kind of things would she say? Conquering, death, famine, now, I think there's a typo here. I, 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 would, I would dare say this one was not translated correctly because, no, I want to go here. The fourth horse, verse 8, is a pale horse. In Greek, the word here is chloros, chloros. That sound familiar? Chloroform, chlorophyll, which means green. Everywhere else, that word is used, is translated as green. Even in Revelation chapter 8, verse 7, 9, verse 4, it's translated as green. So I would suggest it's not a pale horse, it's a sickly green horse. So tell me what's Earth's, what does Earth's history teach? What is Earth's history filled with? The story of earth for the first thousands of years is horrible. It's war. It's famine. It's plagues and pestilence. It's death. So then the earth is going to speak. Now, you got to turn to the book of Moses to really understand Revelation. So jump with me to Moses and let's hear the earth ask the questions that, that Revelation is going to answer. So Moses... Chapter 7, Pearl of Great Price, Moses 7. We get to hear the conversation of the earth. Chapter 7, verse 48. Who wants to read? Chapter 7, verse 48. Yep. And it came to pass that Enoch looked upon the earth, 
and he heard a voice from the bowels thereof saying, Woe, woe is me, the mother of men. I am pained, I am weary, because of the wickedness of my children. When shall I rest and be cleansed from the filthiness which has gone forth out of me? When will my Creator sanctify me, that I may rest in righteousness for a season of my Now, the book of Revelation is the answer to that question. Let me show you when the earth will rest. We're going to turn all of this, all of the pain, all of the anguish of the earth into what? That's the story. Do you see the story? That's the underlying story of the book of Revelation. Is that all the yuckiness of the earth's history is going away. Now, let me put it this way. When the earth, so the earth during the first 6,000 years was what kind of earth? Or is what kind of earth? It's a telestial earth. Now, who can dwell on a telestial planet? Can celestial people dwell on a telestial planet? Obviously, Jesus came. My wife's here. Celestial people can live on a telestial planet. So can terrestrial. So can telestial. But when the earth shifts into number seven, chapter seven, what will the earth be for chapter seven? Not yet. Terrestrial. Yes. The earth will be terrestrial. Now, who can dwell on its terrestrial planet? Celestial and terrestrial. Now, do you see the problem? The earth is, we are hearing the earth's question that when will I be cleansed? When will all of this go away? When will I rest? And the answer is the seventh chapter. But the problem we're now facing about the people on the earth is what? Between today and the millennium, everything that is celestial has two choices. What are they? Change or be destroyed. Change or be destroyed. What's destroyed? Die, killed, burned. To the spirit world. You cannot dwell on this planet if you are telestial. Do you see how we're involved in the earth story? Do you see what he's really telling us is the story of the earth being cleansed and our role in that. So which of those two possibilities would Heavenly Father prefer? Change or be destroyed? There's no question, right? He would prefer change. And so what's he going to do before the event, the end comes? He is going to send out his army to prepare for those changes. And that's who? That's us. That's our day. Do you see why Nephi, do you see why John told this story for us? The book of Revelation is talking about how to prepare the earth for his coming. We are that army. Now, in the midst of all of this, let's tell the other story. So as the earth changes, I want to be on this earth. I would like, go to the end of chapter 6. What's the great question of chapter 6? Revelation now is going to answer the question at the end of chapter 6. What's the question? When all the dust is settled, when the, when the change occurs, who will be there? Who will be there? Now, that is why we read the book of Revelation. Is what is it that I need to do to be there? So let me go to chapter 19 when, G, when, the, when the end comes, when Jesus comes and the earth is cleansed. What's the image here? There's a powerful scriptural image here. Revelation 19. Verse 7. Chapter 7 is given what image? What is chapter 7? 
Oh, no, verse 7. Chapter 16, verse 7. Or chapter 19, verse 7. Chapter 7 is given what image? A wedding feast, a wedding dinner. It's a wedding reception. So if, if I'm going to survive the shift and the change, I better be at the wedding reception. Now, I love to play on that image. That's how I read Revelation is I play on the image that Jesus and the church are getting married and the millennium is their wedding reception. And I need to be at that wedding reception. So I need, there are four things that need to be in place so that I can go to the wedding reception. Tell me what you need to go to any wedding. No one goes to a wedding without an invitation. Okay, so we're going to watch for that. The invitation to the wedding. It's an engraved invitation. And it's engraved where? On your forehead. Okay, what else? What else? Okay, so I need clothing. I need a wedding garment. No one shows up to a wedding without appropriate attire, especially like a temple ceiling. If you show up in street clothes, are you going to witness the wedding? You won't. So I need the appropriate attire. I'm going to bring a gift. And typically music and song is associated with weddings. So you need to know the wedding song. And those are kind of the keys. As we cleanse the earth and change it into a terrestrial state, he kind of gives us these little clues as to, here's how you'll get to the wedding feast. You need an invitation. You need to wear the right clothing. You need to bring a gift. And you need to know the song. So let's just take a few minutes on each one of them. Let's go to the, invita the, the invitation. Go to chapter 6, to the opening of our seal, the sixth, the sixth seal. Revelation chapter 6, he opens our seal. It's the seal before the seventh. And the events he describes aren't even part of the first, what, 1800, or 800 years of the thousand? It's the latter end. So um, let's, let's just jump right to chapter 7. End of chapter 6, beginning of chapter 7. Here's the imagery. In our day, in the sixth seal, four angels are holding back the destruction of this earth. The destruction, meaning it's going to be changed into a terrestrial and everything that's celestial has to be wiped out. Four angels are holding back the destruction. One angel comes who has what? The seal of the living God. And they say to the four angels, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their forehead. What are we doing in our day? What are all our missionaries? What's the gospel? What is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints doing? We're going to every corner of the earth, and the servants of God are getting sealed. A mark, a symbolic mark in their forehead. Give us time. We haven't reached that corner of the earth. Don't destroy the earth yet. We've got to go to that corner and seal the righteous. So that's the work of our day, is we are, we are marking foreheads, symbolically speaking, of all the righteous who believe. Now go to chapter 9, when the destruction is unleashed, who is not destroyed? Verse 4, who is not destroyed? Keep going, keep going. Hurt not the earth, nor the grass, nor any green thing, neither a tree. Only those men who have not the mark of the Father. So, do you have the invitation? Do you, have you put on, have you been marked in your forehead? Now go to chapter 14. 
in Zion. We get this little view of Zion. Remember, it's not that good destroys evil. It's that Zion gathers into one place and evil destroys evil. Symbolism of that is the church was in, I got to be on the east. You're looking at the United States. The church was in the east. They're going to destroy each other, aren't they? What did the church do? The church went west while they did what? That's the symbol. Where will the church be when the earth destroys itself? Gathered in Zion. So chapter 14 is that gathering of Zion. And notice verse 1. What do they have in their foreheads? The name of the Father. The name of the Father has written in their forehead. Now, let's complicate it a little bit. Let's go back to chapter 13. In verse 1, look at the footnote. There's a very important chat. Joseph Smith change. I saw rise up out of the ocean in the likeness of the kingdoms of the earth. A beast. The telestial machine in the form of a beast. Here is the telestial world taking a form as a beast. The telestial world is going to fight back. I don't want to be destroyed. And so that's the beast. This is the symbolism of the, of the enemy. Now, verse 7, tell me what the beast is trying to do. The beast is going to try and destroy the saints. Now, tell me how the beast makes war with the saints. Look at verse 16. And this is the beauty of Revelation. You've got all this dual symbolism going on, these parallel symbols. God is trying to put a mark in your forehead to save you. And the beast says... If you don't have my mark in your forehead, then what? Verse, verse 17. You can't buy and sell. You can't play in my playground if you're not wearing my mark. And that's so true of what's happening in our society, right? If you don't wear the world's marks, you can't play in the world's playground. If you go to Hollywood and you're conservative, you're never going to act in a single movie. And so we see that. It's you've got to wear the world's mark or else you can't play in the world's playground. So there's, the, there's our day. Are you going to put the Lord's mark on you? Or are you going to put the world's mark on you? Now the beauty is, the Book of Mormon illustrates this beautifully. Do you remember the Amlicites? The Amlicites rebelled. Alma chapter 2 and 3. The Amlicites rebel against the Nephites and they want to have a king. And when they're not chosen, they fight against the, Neph the, the Nephites. There's a little war between the Amlicites and the Nephites. Now, do you think in that war, the Amlicites knew who the Nephites were? Do Amlicites recognize the difference between an Amlicite and a Nephite? Yeah, they had a little battle. Then the Amlicites go and join the Lamanites. And they come back to battle against the Nephites. Now, do you see a problem? Amlicites know the difference between Amlicites and Nephites. Nephites know the difference between Nephites and Amlicites. But who doesn't know the difference between Nephites and Amlicites? And who's that a problem for? Because if I'm a Lamanite, who am I swinging my sword at? Anyone who's not a Lamanite. And I don't know the difference between an, Am an Amlicite and a Nephite. So the Amlicites have a problem. So what do they do? Chapter 3, verse 4, the Amlicites, they put a mark on themselves. They put a mark on their foreheads of red. Now, why red on the forehead? After the manner of the Lamanites. Who else had red on their forehead? So do you see what the Lamanites, do you see what the Amlicites did? I don't want your blessing, Nephi. I want their blessing. I want to be protected by them. I want to play on their team. I want to be known as a Lamanite. So they picked up the marks of the Lamanites and put it where? Now, what's the irony of what's going on? 
If you're not wearing the mark of God, you will be destroyed. That's Alma chapter 2 and 3, that story of the Amalekites. The beautiful thing is the Book of Mormon has the opposite, right? The Book of Mormon tells a story about Nephites who want to be known as Lamanites and Lamanites who want to be known as Nephites. So what did the anti-Nephi-Lehites do? They put the marks of the Nephites on them. And so I think all of the, the, what's going on in all of these scriptures is the idea that in our day, God is trying to put a mark on you. We saw this in Passover. If you put the blood of the lamb on your door, then the destroying angel passed you by. In our day, if you have the blood of the lamb on you, then the destroying angel will pass you by. But at the same time that the Lord's trying to put the invitation to the wedding feast on your forehead, what else is happening? The beast is trying to put his image on your forehead. And if you don't have his image, then he's coming after you. And you need to know that, don't you? Your lives can testify that he will come after you if you're not wearing his image. And there's the story of the invitation. There's a lot of marks, blood, paint, door, thing. There's, there's a lot of marks, seals, and patience. What is it, though? Not to be too literal. Don't be literal. Okay. Don't be literal. Do you remember when Nicodemus was being literal and said, how can a man crawl into his mother's womb and be born again? Or the woman at the well, you, you said, if I drink of that water, I'll never thirst again. Don't be literal. The question is, it's Jesus and it's the world. So is this all Christians then? Not just LDS? Do all Christians wear Jesus on them? Do they? None of them wear the world on them? None of them are trying to play? Are all LDS people wearing the mark of Jesus on them? No. There's a devotional by Elder Holland I think and he talks about like if you're tried for being a Christian, will you be convicted? Is there enough evidence? So the idea, am I wearing Jesus? How does the Book of Mormon say it? Have you received his image in your countenance? Do you wear Christ on you? Do you pick up Jesus and put him on you? Now, if you really are wearing Jesus, how would you act? the way Jesus acts. Now, do you see how all of the gospel is just kind of coming into that theme of picking up Christ and putting him on me so I live like him? Now, think temple and robes and put on. How many times do you hear put on and take off? And that's the idea of our day. Those who will be at the wedding feast are those who have done what? Put on Jesus. If you've been caught up in the hype and you've put on the world, you will not be there. You will be lacking an invitation. Now let's do, we're going to run out of time. Let's do the garment. Go to Revelation chapter 19 again. And well, we'll read it. Let's go to 19. Revelation chapter 19. This is where Jesus comes. Verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give hour to him, give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. So, individually, what, I, what am I at this wedding feast? Individually, I'm a guest. Collectively, we are the bride. And the bride better show up to the wedding. Now tell me what brides, tell me how brides make themselves ready. You know what you're going to do. Let me give you, you know, let me give you a scenario. My wife and I were married at 7.50 a.m. in the Salt Lake Temple. It's the only time we could get because it was spring break. We were married at 7.50. We had to get to the temple an hour and a half early. We had to be at the temple at 620. We lived in South Jordan and it was the Salt Lake Temple. It's about an hour drive, parking, walking in. I picked up my bride-to-be at 5 a.m. 
Now you tell me what she did all night. She curled her hair. Because why? This is her wedding day and I want to be beautiful. Now do you see the imagery of the church and Jesus coming? The announcement is the, the lamb has come, his, her wife, his wife hath made herself ready. Now how do you get ready? To her it was granted that she should be a fi, arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. Imagine how a bride feels in that wedding dress. How did you feel? Coming out of the temple in that dress, tell me how you felt. Now, I want to be that when he comes. I want to be that. I want to come out as a bride in her wedding dress. Now, what are her fine linens? Tell me what we will wear as the bride to the wedding. We will wear our righteousness. We will wear our righteousness. The bride will put on her righteousness. Now, now individually, here's how I see it. The announcement comes, hey, Jesus is here. Everyone go put your wedding dress on. And I go to my closet and my righteousness is nothing but a bikini. Now, what are the chances I'm going to see Jesus on my wedding day wearing a bikini? I would rather what? I would rather not go. I would rather not go than show up wearing that. But imagine a life of slowly stitching that dress day in, day out, small little deeds, prayers, fasting, scriptures, church attendance, institute, reading my scriptures, uh, the, the culmination. Okay, everyone put your wedding dress on and I open up that closet and there is the most beautiful wedding dress I've ever seen. Now, how do you go meet him? How do you walk to meet him? Now, there's the, there's the garment. Get the invitation and be wearing the right garment. Let's do this one really quickly. This one isn't as clearly taught in Revelation, but clearly taught throughout the other scriptures. But go to Revelation chapter 5. No, 14, sorry. Go to Revelation chapter 14. There's this beautiful image of those in Zion. Now, what is the gift Jesus wants me to bring to his wedding? Tell me what's the gift. What was the gift way back in the Old Testament when they brought an animal to the altar? What is the only gift that is mine to give? Is it my money? If I give Jesus my money, what am I giving him? What's already his? How about my time? My talents? It was all his. I only have one thing to give. It's the only thing he can't take away. Agency. Me, my agent, my choices. So tell me what is the gift Jesus wants? Me to choose him. The symbol of that gift. Now, I love when Jesus did away with animal sacrifices, he said, I want you to bring me a broken heart and a contrite spirit. I love that idea of broken. We break hearts like we break horses. I don't know if you've ever broken a horse. I worked at a ranch once and in came a, a, a wild horse with a broken leg. And the rancher was determined to save the horse. Had a broken leg and normally what do we do with horses with broken legs? We put them down. But the rancher was determined to save this horse. Now there's no way that, that rancher saves the horse until the horse does what? Trusts him. The first thing the rancher did was put a, a rope around the horse's neck. Now tell me what the horse did. Now that, to me, is the symbol of the natural man. That is a perfect symbol of the natural man. Right there. That rope 
This is me running away from God. I will not yield. I don't trust you. I want to live my way. Now, what is the sign of a broken horse and a broken heart? God, Jesus should be able to lay the rope on his shoulder and walk. And what would I do? I would willingly fall. No resistance. He doesn't have to pull me. When the anti-Nephi-Lehi's buried their weapons, what did it say they were burying? Not the weapons of war. It says they were burying their weapons of rebellion. They buried the weapons of their rebellion. They buried this. And they put that rope on his shoulder and said, you walk and I'll follow you. So in Revelation chapter 14, as the, as the image of those who are saved, verse 4, these are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. Now one more. If you're going to be at the wedding feast, you need to know the song. You need to know the song. In verse, go back to chapter 5. That theme comes up in Revelation a lot. Verse 9, they sung a new song. They sung a new song. Now go to chapter 14. Here's the, th here's the challenge. Verse 3, the elders, you know, the saved, the, the, the people in Zion, sung as it were a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed of the earth. You have to know the song. If you don't know the song, you won't be in the millennium. Now, I'm going to show you the words, ready? I'll tell you the words of the song, ready? Turn to section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Turn to 84. Uh, Doctrine and Covenants. This is going to die any second, so sorry if this dies before we're done. Section 84. Now go to verse 9899. 98. Quoting Jeremiah. He says, until all shall know me who remain even from the least unto the greatest and shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord and shall see eye to eye and shall lift up their voices and with the voice together sing this new song. And then what does it list? The lyrics. I, you, bet you just need a Doctrine and Covenants, right? You just have the DNC in your pocket and you pull that baby out and I know the song. But I think the imagery here is you have to know the tune. There's the words, and the words are meaningless unless you know the tune. Now, I think I know the name of the song. Alma chapter 5, verse 26. What's the name of the song? The song of redeeming love. How do you learn the tune? How do you learn the tune? Let me show you learn the, let me show you, this is beautiful. Let me show you someone who learns the tune. Alma chapter 36. Alma chapter 36 verse, Alma chapter 36. Alma in his wicked state. Starting in verse 12. I was racked with eternal torment. My soul was hard up to the greatest degree and racked with all my sins. I did remember all my sins and iniquities for which I was tormented with the pains of hell. This is Alma the sinner, right? And then what does he remember? Now notice verse 14. This is significant. The very thought of coming into the presence of God did rack my soul with inexpressible horror. In his sins, the thought of facing God filled him with inexpressible horror. And then tell me what Alma does. 
I remembered my dad having taught about one Jesus. And now as my mind caught hold upon this, I cried within my heart, O Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy upon me. And Jesus reclaims him. He snatches him. Now, do you remember verse 14? The thought of facing God filled me with inexpressible horror. How about verse 22? Now, after being redeemed, I thought I saw, even as our father saw, God sitting upon his throne. And instead of wishing he were dead, he longed to be there and to do what? What were the angels doing there that he wished he could do? Because what does he know now? He knows the song. Because he's been redeemed. It sounds like it's, I know the Redeemer. I know the song of redeeming love. Not, I go through lip service and I know about Jesus. I know redemption. I know the song of redeeming love. Now, those themes flow all throughout the book of Revelation as we learn the story about the earth changing. Now, last, go to the end of Revelation. What happens at the end of the millennium? The funny thing is, how much of Revelation is the actual thousand-year period of the millennium? Like two verses. Everything else is up to or the end. So go to Revelation chapter 20. Sorry, this is just faster. I'm going to stay here for a second. I know you can't see as well because I can't zoom in on this. But look at verse 4. So in verse 3, are we beginning or end of the thousand years? Verse 2, they lay hold upon the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. Are we beginning or end of the thousand years? Beginning. How about verse 3? And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and sealed him. Now verse 4, I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and the word of God, which was not who didn't worship the beast, neither his image, neither received his mark upon their foreheads, nor in their hands. Oh, and by the way, they did what? They lived for a thousand years. So how long, how many verses cover the thousand year period of the millennium? One little verse. Because that's not the story. The story is the cleansing of it, the being part of. And now that the millennium's here, we're going to jump. We're going to jump to the very end. We talk about the resurrection. Now, verse seven, when the thousand years are expired. So how many verses do we get of the millennium? So is this the story? Is this the story he's telling us? No. Now, once the millennium is over, what's the next step? Now we have to turn the earth into celestial. So chapter 21, verse 1, we once again have a new earth. Now, who can't stay on this earth? Terrestrial. They need to leave. But once the earth becomes celestial, this idea of going back and living with God is kind of false. We don't go back and live with God. Look at verse 3. We don't go back and live with God. What happens? He comes and lives here. He comes and lives here. This is his home. This is the celestial kingdom. And verse 4, what will he do? One of the most beautiful verses of all scripture. What will he do? He will wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. I make all things new. Now, what does the earth become? A sea of glass. And where did we see that sea of glass? In Heavenly Father's presence. Do you see the story? 
The story was, how did the earth get into the Father's presence? But it's our story along the way. So how do I survive the cleansing of the earth? Well, get the invitation. Put on the wedding dress. Give him the gift and learn the song. And here's the other thing is, do all four of those have imitations? All four of those have imitations. So put the right mark on you. Is there someone in the book of Revelation trying to put the wrong mark on you? Yes. Is there a woman in the, Re- in the book of Revelation that represents the right church, the church of God, clo- clothed in this? Yes. Is there a woman in the book of Revelation that represents the false church? What's happening in all of this is there are imitations. Watch out for those imitations. So with these four things, um, the thing that comes to mind is, is and the thought that provoked it is in the fourth one, talking about a song of redeeming love. And Alma says, can you feel... Uh, if you have you, ever felt it. Can you feel so now? Or have you lost it? And so, I mean, the fifth, or even just along with the fourth would be like enduring to the end, mm-hmm. which took me to the you know, principles of the gospel. Yeah. So is the invitation, is that related to faith, garment, to repentance? You see, you can tie so much of the gospel into this story. That's what I love about Revelation, is it just pulls so many things into. These four images pull so many other gospel principles in. Robes, atonement, put on, take off. Marks. Anointings, it's just so much of the gospel is right here. It's a simple story. When the earth changes, will you be there at the wedding feast? Do you know the song? Do you have the invitation? Are you covered with the the righteousness of the right garment? It's a beautiful book. It's a very simple, very simple story. Don't complicate it. It's the triumph of this earth and the triumph of God. Now, which team are you going to be on? I know a lot of people who would rather play in the beast's playground. Therefore, they wear the marks of the beast. So get the right mark. Anoint yourself with the right mark. Wear the right clothing. Sing the right song. Give the right gift. And you will be with him in the second coming. I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.